0: everybody and welcome back to The Lisa Burke Show. Thank you so much for listening to us, for watching us, catching us on podcasts, however you listen to this show. And as always, it's my great delight to be back with you here in Luxembourg in the week of rentrée when many of the schools go back and the, the children are now... Back at school, much to the relief of some parents. Not all children are back, as I well know, but but we're getting there, we're getting there. My guests this week, as always, I have Sasha Keogh, the newsreader from The Sam Steen Show, for a look back at the week's news, which has been mostly dedicated to the Queen of England. We have Sir Nicholas Forward, who is Sir Nicholas Forward, KC, which we'll talk about, patron of the British Luxembourg Society and a retired judge from the ECJ. And Jackie Spence, member of the Council of the British Luxembourg Society and finally last but not least Janne de Groot co-founder of We Belong Europe and so much more besides that. Welcome to you all. Hello Lisa, how are you? I'm very well. It's really really lovely to have a full studio and to have you all here. I'm going to go straight to you Sasha as always. What has been happening in the news this week, I
1: wonder? (laughs) Yes, it's been dominated by the death of the Queen. I think a lot of people here are surprised, actually, at the coverage, not just being UK coverage, but uh, actually across the world. It has continued Um, and we've all got very caught up in the the sort of the pomp and the ceremonies that have obviously been long planned and that have continued all week so from from the removal of the Queen's body uh, from Balmoral to Edinburgh then uh, members of the public again could uh, go and uh, sorry walk around and and visit the coffin of the Queen and there was a vigil um and there were there was i think again there was much surprise quite how many people did queue up to to go and visit the the queen and on the point of queuing
0: my goodness oh well, well london has taken over yes it's I love this tweet that you found, which I missed. And I'm going to read the tweet because it's just so comical and funny. Right, everyone, I need to be serious for a moment because the greatest thing that ever happened is happening right now. I don't particularly care either way about the Queen, but the queue, the queue is a triumph of Britishness. is incredible. Just to be clear, I don't mean the purpose of the queue. I don't mean the outpouring of emotional collective grief or the event at the end or around the queue or the people in the queue. I mean, literally the queue, the queue itself. It is the mother load of queues. It is art, it is poetry, it is the queue to end all queues. It opened earlier today and is already 2.2 miles long, way more than that right now. They will close it if it gets to five miles. I think that now may be extended to 10 miles. That's a queue that would take two hours to walk at a brisk pace. It's a queue that goes right around the entirety of London. It has toilets and water points and websites just for the queue. You cannot leave the queue, you cannot get into the queue further down. You cannot hold places in the queue. There are wristbands for the queue. Once you join the queue, you can expect to be there for days, but you cannot have a chance. Chair and a sleeping bag. There's no sleeping bag in the queue for the queue moves constantly and steadily day and night. You'll be shuffling along at 0.1 miles per hour for days. There is a YouTube channel, Twitter feed and Instagram page, each giving frequent updates about the queue because the back of the queue naturally keeps moving. To join the queue requires up-to-the-minute knowledge of where the queue is now. I love that tweet so
1: much. It is pretty good, isn't it? Um, I mean, it is astonishing that people are prepared to spend 11 hours It is cu- at the moment for I think 8 kilometres is the current state of the queue um, and as you say you can't, you can't sit down you can't uh, have a break apparently people are bringing food and there are mobile toilets um, but it is amazing and uh, what really struck me is, is watching an people talking about it and they're, it's very good humoured and they're saying it's a great atmosphere although it's a sad occasion and you're like, but you've been standing here for hours um, so I think people do want to be part of history don't they they very much feel that this is part of history and the other thing that really has struck me is how many people are saying things like it's helping me grieve about uh, my granny or deal deal with something personal mm-hmm. um and that comes as a surprise but then the queen said famously grief is the price we pay for love uh which actually was uh, a saying that was repeated by president biden this week um Maybe that's it. Yeah, and actually, poignantly, when it reminds
0: one of one's own grief, I think Prince William's also been quoted as saying, "You know, obviously, walking behind the coffin has clearly reminded him of uh, what he had to do for his mother's funeral
1: as well." I think you saw that as well, mm. didn't you? It mm. was it was very moving seeing seeing uh, uh, King Charles and and the boys walking behind the coffin again.
0: On the point of King Charles, I did introduce you, Nicholas, as Sir Nicholas Forward. KC. So this is another change that has happened because and instantly when the Queen died, KC stands for King's Council. You have been up until last week, Queen's Council. So explain to our listeners what this actually means.
2: Well, it's a title that goes back, I think, to the mid-17th century and um, uh, introduced uh, in its original form, uh, so it is said, because the king wanted to raise some money. So he uh, in- invented the idea of giving senior barristers uh, the possibility of a title of counsel to the king. Um, but it evolved over the years uh, to um, uh, the present situation, which is that the honour of Queen's Council as it used to be or King's Council as it now is, is granted to the most senior barristers in the profession uh, as a recognition of their uh, ability in the eyes of their colleagues and so on, uh, and and also uh, as a way of uh, identifying uh, the, the leaders of the profession. It, Originally, it was granted only to barristers, now it's extended to solicitors as well because the United Kingdom has a divided profession. Uh, there are also honorary Queen's Council, quite frequently uh, professors of law and others who haven't actually practiced as barristers. But the the title is still there and it still, I'm pleased to say does re- re- represent a certain recognition by one's own profession of uh, the fact that one's done a reasonable job.
0: Well, you're very modest of course. How does it feel for you to change that? Did you expect it to happen in your lifetime?
2: Right. Well, uh, if only on the basis of arithmetic and hoping (laughs) that I would live a little longer than I have, I I think the chances are always that it was going to happen. Uh, What has struck me, however, is how uh, the death of the sovereign, uh, which to me had various uh, importances, not least because I happened to have met her twice in my legal career, Uh, once when I was a very young barrister and once uh, at the very end of my career. So I'll come back and we can talk about that later. Uh, But uh, her death brought home to me uh, how significant the sovereign uh, and in her capacity as sovereign and head of state, but also how Queen Elizabeth personally uh, was more than just the head of state of the United Kingdom. Uh, she contributed so much more to that, and some of which I uh, recognized from the, the two occasions when I did have the chance to, to meet her rather more closely. So it was...
0: Well, I do want to ask about those occasions, but you really mentioned something that I've been thinking about a lot this week. She really managed to be an incredible head of state in a way Mm -hmm. that I'm not sure elected politicians could ever be, uh, not least because they will come from one of the nations within uh, the United Kingdom. Um, But she spread her wings across them all and really geographically did so and lived in different places as well. I mean, notably Scotland, but, but she was felt in all of the four nations. Um, do you think that makes a difference, having a monarch as a head of state?
2: I, I, I think having a monarch as head of state uh, obviously helps uh, in particular with transitions from one government to another uh it, it of course presidents can and, and and frequently do fulfill that role, but given that uh many uh, elected presidents uh, can come uh, in, in, into their role i mean the presidents vary in the extent to which they have still have political influences and almost range from President macron at one end to president uh, uh, O'Higgins uh, of Ireland, uh, who, in the degree to which they are involved in the, in the business of governments. I think uh, one of the uh, attractions of the, uh, the monarchical system, which in, indeed is to a certain extent echoed here in Luxembourg, is when you have a hereditary head of state, uh, there is uh, one further step back from being involved in politics. Um, and th- the head of state can. Uh, take a broader view in what uh, Walter Badgett, the famous uh, political commentator uh, described as the role of the monarch being uh, to encourage, to warn uh, and to be informed uh, of go- government policy at any at any one time. It's not a, a public process of course, it's a private process done in the United Kingdom uh, with the um, weekly consultations At which the prime minister will go and discuss whatever he or she discusses with the sovereign Mm -hmm. uh, and wants to discuss with the sovereign and indeed also to a certain extent what the sovereign wants to discuss with him or her
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and as you already said privately so which is a wonderful thing to have in this day and age when we're surrounded by phones and various leaks Um, so tell us about the two times you met the queen
2: well, the first occasion was when I was a very baby barrister. And one of the things that barristers do before they even start practicing, if they're lucky, is they will go as the. Um, uh, to accompany a, 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 a judge, a high court judge. In the, in the old days, they were called judges of a size, as they go around the country. Uh, Judges uh, are sometimes described as dispensing the Queen's justice and indeed in those days the assize judge would have a commission signed by the monarch appointing them to go and try the cases before the Queen's uh, courts. Uh, I was lucky enough to be uh, a marshal to a judge who was um, uh, going what was called the the Midland and Oxford circuit uh, to Oxford and that was where he was at the the time. Uh the judge's lodgings were a house which belonged then to the uh the Miller family. He, the Colonel Miller was the Crown Aquary. uh And uh, uh, at that time I'd just left university. Prince Charles as he then was was still at university and was in the Cambridge uh, University polo team. And they were having a match at uh, Kirklington, I think it was. And uh, the Queen was rather keen to go and watch the match. It was at a weekend. She uh, wanted somewhere to have lunch. She, uh, in a sense typically for her, did not want to, to have a lot of fuss. Uh, so uh, Colonel Miller suggested that she might like to come and have lunch at their their house, which was also the judge's lodgings. Now, uh, 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 when that information was passed to the the, the judge at the time, <laughs> uh he said well i must leave the county at once now you may say why well, must i leave the county at once that is because the uh the judges are were essentially the queen's or the monarch's representatives in the county dispensing their justice so by there was a, a long-standing formal tradition that the judge couldn't be there at the same time as the uh, 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 as the monarch because so she can
0: dispense her own justice
2: <laughs> yes uh, I, I think the judge was swiftly kicked under the table by his wife you know, on the ankles and said no no don't be silly and i was uh we were reassured that uh, her majesty wouldn't think of it and uh, so there was a, a A very informal little lunch party of eight uh, at which uh, the judge's marshal, who I happened to be at the time, was present. The judge, his wife, his daughter, the two colonels, Miller, a lady in waiting and her majesty. Wonderful. Um, And it was, I still remember it quite vividly, quite uh, an impressive occasion.
0: I can imagine. How do you cook for, um, you cook for the Queen?
2: <laughs> well, fortunately, that wasn't my responsibility. <laughs> and I'm pleased that it wasn't, otherwise she might not have survived. <laughs> so, what a um,
0: lovely memory. Yes.
2: Yeah. Um, and I, I must say, I, I still remember vividly uh, being struck by her appearance uh, and how she, she had an enormous presence. Um, she was a most attractive woman um uh, in, in in the flesh i one sees many good photographs of her but uh, at that stage i mean she was still well, that was more than fifty years ago now so uh, uh she was still then yeah, a, a, a very uh, handsome woman um She was very keen to see a horse, I know, that the the, the, the brothers Miller had, and that was inspected. I remember that uh, I had just acquired a a Morgan sports car, which uh, some of you may know, a classic English sports car, which was parked outside. And she commented on that, uh, uh, to my pleasure.
0: What a wonderful memory. And the second time then?
2: Well, the second time, of course, uh, was uh, when I uh, was knighted. Uh, because uh, as you know uh, the, the uh, uh, one is uh, knighted uh, normally by a member of the royal family, which of course these these days or those days was not necessarily the queen herself, uh, but luckily, because of uh, I happened still to be living in Luxembourg at the time and had to plan when I could attend one of the investitures. Uh, it happened that the the timing that was chosen meant that I went to Windsor Castle in April, which is uh, when the Queen herself do, does the investitures.
0: And had she remembered you from that lunch? Uh,
2: I, I think I think she hadn't remembered me, or she might have been reminded of it, I think is, would, would be fair to say. I'm not sure that I impressed her that much first time round, that 50 years on she was going to. Uh, <laughs> well, she meets a lot of people. She did she does, meet a indeed. lot of people, I should say. Yes.
0: Well, how lovely that you have these strong memories. And, of course, the reason we're talking about this is because the British Luxembourg Society, Mm. you had planned a trip to London, firstly through COVID times, then that had to be scrapped. Then you replanned it to be last weekend. So tell us, Jackie, what happened on this visit? You arrived on Thursday, I believe.
3: We made a very early start. We arrived in London at 730 and we had a programme which was I should say fifteen people from Luxembourg, fourteen non Brits. There was just myself and one other who were British. So it was it was interesting to see their perspective of the whole derroulement of the of of the days. Because the, you literally arrived on
0: the day. We arrived on the, the day died. and we
3: completed our programme that was planned, which was a visit to the Armourers Guild and then to a um, a Roman temple and then we went to the Victorian Albert Museum and Tours. And we got back to the hotel and to check in. I flicked on my television and it said the Queen has died. And I thought, what is that going to mean? Personally, for me, I've got I've got fifteen people who are relying on me for the next four days. Um, we had a private dinner that night, and we obviously raised a glass to the Queen. I went to bed eleven o'clock. The phone rings, and it's Nicholas saying lunch is off tomorrow because he he was organizing you were organizing the following day so
0: tell us about the next day then to jump back to you Nicholas you had organized this wonderful trip around uh, Middle Temple I believe
2: well, well uh, uh, yes part, part of the trip was a visit to the Middle Temple to see the heart of the the London legal community where the barristers uh, work and some of them even live um, and uh, to, to see, amongst other things, the Middle Temple Hall, uh, which uh, goes back to the late 16th century when it was built, uh, a place that is, has some considerable fame. It was the, the place of the first performance, first recorded performance of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night in 1603, for example. At any event, uh, we had arranged uh, for lunch uh, there, um, and unfortunately, I <laughs> a couple of hours after learning of the death of the Queen, I received an email saying, I'm afraid we can't do lunch tomorrow. So I thought, mm, we'll have to see what else we can do. We managed, uh, I went out first thing in the morning, uh, was going round to find uh, somewhere else where the group could have lunch. We would planned a visit to, as well as Middle Temple Hall and the library, to the Temple Church and the and the gardens, which are, are well known. Um, and I happened to see uh, the verger of the Temple Church, which is a, a church that many of you, particularly if you're enthusiasts of the Da Vinci Code, will know is uh, plays a certain role in the uh, some some of the. Uh, Uh, stories about the Templars and so on. Uh, And he was uh, rushing around, and I said, good morning, and have you heard the terrible news? He said, yes, we are, in fact, preparing uh, a short service uh, to take place later today, uh, at which we will commemorate uh, Her Majesty. And I said, would it be at all possible? Because I was trying to find alternative attractions for the group um, but uh, and it seemed to me that this would be a wonderful occasion for them to to join in uh, at least sort of one of the first uh, uh, aspects or the first ways of uh, of showing our our collective uh, thoughts about the the passing of the sovereign. And he said, yes, yes, you'd be very welcome. And so after uh, we'd had a little lunch and done a trip round the temple. Uh, The the group uh, joined me and uh, a number of others in the temple church where there was a a, a very moving, very short, but moving ceremony at which uh, various speeches, uh, extracts from speeches of the Queen were read out, all of which managed to capture uh, so many aspects of her personality and life and her consideration for everything, the country, the constitution, her people, and so on. Uh, but then, in the middle of it, between the readings, suddenly the uh, master of the temple and the verger stopped their readings, and there was broadcast over the system the speech that she herself had given uh, on the evening after her coronation, in which she spoke of service so, and so on. I'm still quite moved at the thought of it, as I was certainly moved at the time, as indeed I think everyone who uh, was there was. So it was uh, not part of the original programme, but I think that uh, those who were lucky enough to have been on on the group on, on that occasion will uh, Treasure. Uh, will remember.
0: And so nice for the non-British people who were most of your group, in fact, to be there at that time, I think, perhaps.
3: Well, it was interesting, yes. I think initially, you know, I was anxious. I thought, what am I going to, do? you know, what's going to happen over the next two or three days? In fact, the rest of the programme went ahead beautifully. But that, that was a beautiful punctuation point. I think for me personally, i walked into the church and they were playing Nimrod, and that always arouses a feeling of emotion, I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. And the service, as Nicholas said, was, was, was perfect. And then we went on, we went to Covent Garden afterwards, we signed the condolence book, and, you know, things were beginning to change. It was quite an quite a unusual period. I think every day the mood changed. People were getting to grips with what it was really about. You know, the Royal Opera House now has blanked out the ER2 on the curtains, and... Um, Small things like that were Well, happening. you say
0: small things, but actually they will become it's like QC Casey. That's mm. yep,
3: that's exactly. an easy one to change, at
0: least on your business card. But it's not so easy when it comes to post boxes or stamps or money,
3: for instance. No. But we've heard about this already. Yes, I mean that's going to take quite a long time. Yeah. But I think for the group it was it was just so lovely. I was taking them to St. Paul's Church, the actors' church in Covent Garden, and then they all said to me, We want to go to Buckingham Palace. And so they walked and I think they were very lucky because actually on Friday, the queue, (laughs) there wasn't a queue on Friday afternoon. You could go right up to the palace gates. And I think that for the group and they were, you know, from my feeling, I've wrecked their week or this visit. It, it turned into something so much more. Well, so important. incredibly timely uh, historically. I, yes,
1: I'm a good planner, but not <laughs> that good at <laughs> But it must have felt very special, rather than watching these things on television, which always removes you, doesn't it? It you does. You don't have that same engagement, and and you're not moved. I, I'm sure in the same way as like 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 the. Um, I think we you were all, in that church. Yeah.
3: I think I think everybody you know brings back memories. Yeah. I mean. The Queen was born at the beginning of what is called the silent generation. I was born at the end of it. And, you know, we talk about Gen Z and the Manellians and so on, but this, the silent generation doesn't actually get talked about very much. And yet she exemplified that generation, Um, I, I feel. You know, all the descriptors of the silent generation, hardworking, resilience, determination, trustworthiness, traditional values, all those things were wrapped up in Queen Elizabeth II. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think the love we feel for her is because she was so true to herself and to her values and for so long. And I think everybody amongst us must feel that to some degree. I saw her first when I was nine and she... that was the beginning of her what i would feel in some ways her first real service she replaced her father at the trooping of the colour which is the parade on the king's or queen's birthday and he was too ill to ride and i remember as a 9 year old my father took me and you know she was riding side saddle immaculate this scarlet jacket this navy riding skirt her beautiful back, you know, straight. And she, I, I, as a little girl, I just thought that was quite, quite extraordinary. Um, made a huge impression on you. It made a huge impression, as I think for my generation did her father. She is her father's daughter. You know, all that diligence and caring that he showed to the country during the war, they never left London. They stayed in London. They visited people the daughters went out to windsor but he stayed and i think that sense of duty of tradition of all the qualities that we saw in the queen i think go actually
0: back. i think that was her first recording that has, still exists when she was a girl scout or talking as a Girl Scout I imagine she was uh, a teen talking about moving out to Windsor I don't know her age exactly when the recording was made but just for all of the other children as well mm-hmm. um, and I, I listened to that recording and, and of course yeah. the voice the voice gets you the change mm-hmm. in the voice it does doesn't it it really you does
3: to the recordings
0: well so lovely that you both had the opportunity to to meet in different ways mm-hmm. and to to be there at the the
3: full stop of her life so to speak and she of course, did come to Luxembourg remember she did you
0: tell us about that actually I yes. know you have some notes on that
3: in you know, the well, notes I mean I, I, we arrived in Luxembourg barely 6 months and it was the end of the silver jubilee yes. 1977 and she came on I think it was probably about a 3 day state visit and she went all around the country but we had a reception. There was a reception for her. And I just remember the British community. Do we wear gloves, hats? Everybody, do we? how deep do we curtsy? How deep do we curtsy? There was all that sort of, you know, conversation going on. And she was obviously quite young then because 77. Yeah. I so, do my maths. So I, I watched please.
1: a recording of that um, where she's tried actually rather well spoke a, a little bit of Luxembourgish um, and and it's it's very very sweet um, it, ah. she just says um, I don't speak Luxembourgish very well so please excuse me but in Luxembourgish and it's lovely.
0: That's, I must see that video I haven't seen you that video say. at all but switching tack now back to a little bit of news Sasha uh, I mean a lot's been happening right. <laughs> by the by apart from all the pageantry around um, the Queen's procession from Balmoral down to uh, Buckingham Palace, etc., as well. So let's take a look at Europe. Let's take a look at what might have been happening in Europe this week, what has been happening in Europe. We had uh, the speech for Ursula von
1: der Leyen. Yes, so the EU, she's not, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen did her annual State of the Union address in Strasbourg this week. And it was a barnstorming speech, I have to say. Um, I don't think she's normally so well known for, for speaking, but it was really strong, um, particularly because of Ukraine. So um, she was dressed in uh, Ukrainian colours and the guest of honour was uh, Olena uh, Zelenska. Um, and um in the background of the speech, when she started, there, w- there were videos of of the Ukraine war going on in the back, and there was she left no doubt in the room that the EU is very much uh, not it, you know, not just paying lip service um, to to Ukraine accession uh, to the EU. She announced that she would go straight after the speech uh, to Kiev to discuss um, the accession. Uh, timeline uh, with with Zelensky. And um, it was very strong. And it was really, we, we, you know, Ukraine will succeed and Putin will fail. And sanctions are working and we will continue to support. It was, it was, uh, yeah,
0: it was strong. Very and good. On
1: the point of Ukraine, it seems that there's a a counteroffensive it seems that progression is happening from the bits well, of news we're getting is, here yes, there is this lightning counteroffensive um you know, it's, uh, President Zelensky has claimed that they've taken back over eight thousand square meters of territory. Um, but of course, there are there is terrible news of the newly liberated towns. Um, I mean, today we reported there was uh, there's been a mass grave found in the town of Isium, where they found hundreds of bodies. And so, I mean, I'm afraid, unfortunately, now, of course, the 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 terrible stories will will come out. The the more. Area is liberated, but uh, let's see. Um, the uh, American uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, um, he was kind of cautiously optimistic when he was commentating on it. Um, but you know, we saying this is not the end. You know, there's, there's 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 people far better qualified than me to to talk about the the future analysis of, of the war, but. Um, well, it's
0: not clear it was, yet. It's only clear no. afterwards. And even then, we only hear certain parts of the story. Mm. And then I love this funny story that you found of a Luxembourgish traveller who triggered an airport bomb alarm.
1: <laughs> yes. Poor woman. I felt so sorry. And she's for a 78 her. year old woman. 78 year old woman coming home from holiday. And um, she had bought or had been given a um, cigarette lighter in the shape of a grenade, um, <laughs> which what is a dreadful novelty. idea. <laughs> No old things it was in her suitcase so um obviously uh yes she got stopped but um the the airport called the uh, the, the that they called everybody and they they grounded all the planes. I mean, luckily, it was a small airport in Uzidom, which is between Poland and Germany. I'd never heard of that place till I read about it. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd, my sympathies were just so with her because you just think you could so easily be given something, not think of it. And then to ground planes, have people waiting hours because of this.
0: Well, I think I
1: probably would think about
0: a firelighter in the shape of grenade. I would have thought those two things <laughs> in airport security. I think it would have registered. Yes, but
1: maybe you think it would be confiscated but for them to call the demining service oh yeah that's um, a good- <laughs> of, of the whole state of Mecklenburg-Vorpommern <laughs> yeah it was quite funny oh
0: golly well Sasha as always I wish we could get through more news uh it's wonderful to have you here I know you may or may not uh, be able to stay with us while Jana jumps Jana sorry Jana jumps in and I'm going to just uh, introduce Jana now to us so just coming after the break let me introduce to you Jana mm-hmm. Diana de Groot is a co-founder of We Belong Europe, an initiative to inspire next-generation leadership for young Europeans from diverse backgrounds to create a future pool of role models. We Belong Europe brings women together in spaces free of hatred and discrimination to share and reflect on their experiences, examine their histories and identities, and construct their own life narratives. You have a podcast which is called... That Glad you said that, not me. <laughs> and you discuss urgent social issues of our time. Uh, you believe in the importance of youth voices in government. You're a local councillor in Steinsel, in my hometown, and one of the youngest elected officials in Luxembourg. You've been an activist since the age of 15 an Obama leader with the Obama Foundation programme, a council member of the A-Political Foundation and for many years in the leadership team of EYP Luxembourg. Yana, it's fabulous to have you with us. I've wanted you on my show for so long. Um, Hard to know where to begin, but um, let me start with activism. Why have you been drawn to activism from your mid-teens?
4: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I always wanted to come to your show, but I've been travelling a lot recently. So when it comes to activism, I I always thought that young people voices matter and that we have a seat at the table. So when at school, I used to go to school here in Limpertsberg, in Robert Schumann, I always felt like they don't really take me serious. Um, <laughs> and when I had concerns, I was not listened to. So at one point I said, okay, I need to go to the youth parliament. I felt like if I go to the youth parliament, I can maybe change things. And this is how I developed. So I went to the youth parliament at the age of 15, then... I went to the European Youth Parliament when I 16, 17, 18. I organized conferences here in Luxembourg where I gather young people from all over Europe to talk about issues and topics that are. That that concern us not just for today but also for our future. And then I never stopped. And then at one point I realized, okay, I'm not gonna just influence policies. I really want to be sitting at the table Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh, also taking decisions. So at the age of 21, I ran my first elections in Steinsel. And uh, people cautioned me to not be upset when I end up last, but I want to see it. I'm super grateful for the trust that I got back then at the age of 21. Um, And then the year after, I ran for national elections. And for me, it's important to just, you know, show that... Young people are making a difference. Women are making a difference. People like me that are, that belong to minority groups are making a difference. Um, and yes, representation matters. And I think it's really the reason I, I ended up in politics is maybe because I didn't really feel represented. Well, I looked at the picture uh, from the Steinsel Commune elections
0: and I must say you do stand out because you're so different to who you're standing next to, who are the typical white older males. Mm -hmm. Uh,
4: You're a very different face on that sheet. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm very different. It's just... You know, they do an amazing job. Uh, It's not uh, nothing against uh, this, this council members, but it's just like, it's super important to occupy as a young person these spaces to show younger generations, hey, politics it's okay to scream and be upset about things but if you don't <laughs> if you don't enter this space nothing is going to change um, so it's, it's important for others to see okay Jana is going that way maybe I consider it the next time but for now yes there's a huge generational gap in the council uh, I'm now 27 um, and yeah the, you're still one of the youngest there I'm the young yeah I'm really the youngest and it's okay, but it's very much needed. This, you know, change of perspectives, change of priorities that younger younger voices are in the room. How do you feel about the idea,
0: sometimes it's spoken about in the UK, for instance, people who are career politicians, who've never had work outside of politics, who've never experienced what might be perceived as real life or work in in this private sphere. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about that
4: idea? Should people always stay in politics or should they do other work as well? I used to think that... Uh it's it's very dangerous to, for example, jump from, you know, uh just I imagine university and then get elected and be in politics because it's not a real job as many say. Oh, it's a real job, but it requires experience of a lot of the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I feel that um mm. It's okay, you know. Like it's okay to to go into that space. If you, re- you we need ethical leaders in there. We need people that are close to 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 the constituents. Um, there's no need to necessarily always already have all this experience. This is what a lot of young talents think. That I meet, um, they say, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm maybe in twenty years. But it's it's needed now. You can train, you can get trained to run for elections. I feel like what we need, especially in Europe and in Luxembourg, is training. We don't this is the, being a politician is the only job that needs no training to do it. You know, like I feel like the, you know, I dream of, you know, even this school where you get trained on how to make policies, how to talk, how to be here with you and you know, respond to journalists. This is all things that I had on my on my side, I had to learn this by myself, and I fell many times. And it's hard to <laughs> to fall and always stand up. Um, uh, and it's for some, it would be even di- discouraging to continue if you face threats, that threats, hate uh, on daily basis, because you did a mistake. And if you would get trained, or if you had yeah, if you had training before, maybe there, the chances of facing that would be. Less Like you would not face that on that extent. So I feel like politicians need to be trained uh, to go into office. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, just going back to the previous point, because you mentioned so many points there, actually, that I want to delve into. Um, One point is that some people and you said you've met young people who think, oh, I can't enter politics until I have experience. But the other thing you care so much about is representation, representation of the people that the politicians are there for. Uh, and of course, you talk about minority groups, uh, female role models and young people, so your voice for all of these people. Um, you also mentioned hate. And have you ever faced hate speech or racism?
4: Yes, <laughs> yes, um, I, I have. Um, I think it's when I really entered politics and I was in the public eye, of course, I would also face this kind of challenges. Uh, it's of, it's not a majority, but still, when at the age of twenty two or younger, you get like Dutch rats. It's heavy because you don't really know where to go to and who to reach out to. If I would tell this to my parents, my mother would say, "Just leave it, leave the space." Now I, oh, I never wanted to leave because the aim is to. I know why I do it for. I know my why. Uh, I'm not there for myself. I'm there for what I represent for the future generations. But there is a lack of support, and I face this. But um it's okay <laughs> no it's okay because like I try to talk more about it I used to be very silent about it now I speak up about it and it helps it helps raising awareness and all of that so yeah well getting death
0: threats is not really okay I mean when you have that uh, coming at you and you're pummeled with a uh, negative speech it infests you and it must have an impact on your mental
4: health yes I mean I, I, yeah, I Thank you for <laughs> going there because, yes, it's really had an impact on my mental health. Um, last, during COVID especially, I started really developing these anxieties, uh, being very afraid of doing mistakes. Um, so I would really start being a bit paranoid, like just thinking, don't do this mistake because there might be someone in your email later that will say something you will not deal with. Uh, but this is just the impact it had on me. And then I had to also, now today I admit, you know, I, I managed to admit even as a politician, hey, I've not been doing well. This is something politicians don't like to do because as being a politician is perceived as being a stone without emotions. Uh, but... Politicians are humans and they have emotions. I hope they they should have emotions, right? They should care. Uh, And I do have emotions. Um, I do have emotions. And during COVID, I really had a hard time. And now it's getting, it's really getting better in particular because I I did this Obama uh, leadership uh, training at the Obama Foundation that really changed my life and how I lead, how I take decisions, how I express myself. Uh, it really changed. And today I can really say I've been struggling and it's okay to talk about it. It is okay to reach out, reach out for help. Um, and uh, because healthy leaders are going to inspire creating healthy communities. It's better to be healthy in your decision-making while you do decision-making than being, you know, having anxieties and fears. Um, so, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, you've met Obama, you've been chosen to be on this course. And I think that really catapulted you into the spotlight here in Luxembourg. And they thought perhaps people here in Luxembourg hadn't taken you so seriously before that. But suddenly the rest of the world was taking you seriously and Luxembourg is <laughs> playing catch up. What was it like? Uh, what is it like to be an Obama leader?
4: Overwhelming. <laughs> Tell us about the course. So, um Last year, in the beginning of two thousand twenty-two, I got an no, I got an email in two thousand twenty-one that said um, you've been nominated by someone in Spain um, to become an appoint- like an Obama leader. I'm so, so sad that it wasn't nomination from Luxembourg. But I don't think we we really know even these programs. We we live here. We're in a small country, and I feel sometimes we don't dream big enough. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we should dream big enough young people should dream big enough even if we come from this little country anyway i hope that i can nominate one time one person from luxembourg but i've been nominated from someone in spain that i don't know and i got an email from the obama foundation that says yes uh, we are interested in supporting you and uh, would you like to have an interview or would you first fill out this form and then we will have an interview and i was I was in Paris, I was giving a training at the Council of Europe, so I was driving with the train to, to Strasbourg, and I was in the train, and I said, <laughs> Obama, who, like <laughs> Obama from Europe, Obama, <laughs> what do you mean Obama, you know? <laughs> anyway, I go, you know, I've been in China, so I, so I told myself I have 25 minutes to fill out this form, so I'm going to do it in 25 minutes, I started typing, super fast, super fast, and then I send it. And then a few weeks after, I get like this email that says, yes, yeah, so Barack Obama wants to support your leadership. And he talked about my podcast. It's called "Wat Leeft, which means what's on in Luxembourgish. And I, and I use this word a lot. Um, and I said in Luxembourgish, like Vat Liv, you know, what's happening here, you know? Um, and still, my, I don't think, long enough about it so i didn't tell anyone so i just saw it i said oh my god and then i just continue my life i don't know how you could keep that inside yourself yeah it's just like <laughs> i just move on then in january i studied law and i did a master's a second two-year master's uh one in public law one in international law so i still had exams this uh, winter last winter oh yeah beginning of 2022 And uh, I was in the middle of the exams. (laughs) But the Obama Foundation wanted to launch the cohort. It's like 36 people from Europe that they they choose. And they wanted to launch it. And we need to post. Like, we need to share this that we've been selected. So I shared this. And then, boom, so many messages, so many likes, media, everyone. And I was in the middle of my exams. So it has been overwhelming. But I tried to, yeah, To just like put the phone away and study. Anyway, I I managed. And then uh, I did a course of six months. It was a leadership course online with these 36 people and we would meet, you know, all kinds of leaders. Also the mayor of London, for example, uh, Sadi Khan, that would talk about his way to office, the challenges, you know, and then we met other politicians. So he connected us with the most amazing leaders in Europe. Um, And we learned a lot about leadership, ethical leadership, leading with the right values and how you can also, you know, how you can navigate different spaces. Uh, For me, the most life-changing Course that I took, it was one um, uh, that also Barack Obama and Michelle Obama had. Uh, it's the public narrative course uh, by uh, Dr. Marshall at the Howard University, Howard Kennedy University. And he gave us like public, public narrative, how you express yourself if you have to talk about what drives you in public. And this is something, and he really, really needed.
0: Can I ask, is a public narrative the same as your personal narrative?
4: I mean you choose what you say in the public narrative but you add you learn to add your personal what you know what is inside of you your emotions and you learn to move and what people what do they what do they suggest is a good balance of giving yourself all of yourself up or how much should you hold back this is up to you. I, I mean, everyone has boundaries, but it's divided in three aspects. It's the story of us, story of self, and story of now. So you by using that three aspect of narrative and if you learn that you manage to captivate people that are in front of you so you start for example you know who is in front of you you need to make sure that they relate to what you are saying if i just scream and say oh i'm this i'm not happy because i have faced uh, this one time a death threat on my email people that are in front of me they they feel bad for me but how can they relate how can they relate to what i go through so if i add Um, people in front of me might be parents, you know. So I say, okay, you might be a parent, but also have parents at home that are afraid of what I'm going through. And then they can relate more because they can identify... With my challenge, and this is something we learned, it has been life changing. Um, I'm not, you know, English is not my mother tongue, but even by doing all these courses, I feel more comfortable. By also doing mistakes, you know, learning to accept doing mistakes, which is something I didn't do before. And Now I'm just relaxed and yeah, a lot that, a lot that I learned. Going back to what you said previously about politicians are often viewed
0: as stones with no emotions. Of course, that's not true. But we often see the hammering that politicians get from the public or from each other. And you talk about ethical leadership. You talk about more kindness in public office as well. What's your vision, your hope for the future as you move into politics, maybe for your entire life ahead? What would you like to see? And who would you like to see in politics
4: And how would you like the public to deal with our politicians? First, I want the public to hold politicians accountable when they are sitting in office, right? Uh, This is super important. But my vision for the future is if we could learn to change the mindset of like, what if we loved our politicians? I see today talents that prefer go work for Amazon, for example, instead of considering public service. We 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 talked before about Queen uh, Queen Elizabeth. She dedicated her whole life to public service. If is is someone today because I've been also in, in the UK when she died. So you were all there. The same I was week. there. Yeah, I was in Manchester and a very big conference that got interrupted when she died, and everyone. Was sad and yeah, it was, it was a very moving moment when, when I was there. So I've been also there. But, um, you know, she dedicated her whole life to public service. Today, young people, if I ask them, they're afraid. They are afraid. They want to have a, they live a life in peace, <laughs> um, not being exposed to, to threats also online because, you know, this generation grows up with the digital world. We are exposed to everyone's opinion. Uh, they're, yeah, we are connected differently, we communicate differently. So these are real threats. So now I want to have these talents that tend to go to to, pri- to the private sector, consider politics as a place to create change. It's so needed. So I wish to see more ethical leaders, so people with the right values um people from diverse backgrounds and uh, people also that are not afraid to say hey I did a mistake you know I, I've been to one of my events in Steinzel yesterday and I talked with people of Steinzel about it because you know pe- politicians they do mistakes and if a politician would be more open to say hey this was not this make no sense you know but i am gonna do better I feel like we're gonna move and we're gonna create more tangible change and we're going to change a bit more the status quo uh, in the future so
0: yeah. And then when it comes to getting more young people into politics you spoke already about the need for training how should that be funded?
4: (laughs) Yeah it's a good question so there's also a huge problem is the moment I've been an activist I've been always doing I've been mobilizing right uh, organizing conferences and I would get funding the moment I go into politics the funding is a, is not there anymore and we need to behind the scenes so on more on the global European level I'm fighting a lot to get funders fund uh, politicians and new ideas you know young politicians I do have ideas and good ideas I think and I know that there are also other YANAs out there that also have good ideas, but they don't have the means anymore to do it, you know, to organize, to do something because everyone is afraid of politics. We and have to you have to be able to afford to go into politics. Absolutely. As we see
0: often in America, for
4: instance. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Here I'm lucky, I'm from Luxembourg, you know, when I studied I had I had study money <laughs> that I could then use to travel back to Steinsel to my council meetings. This is not this not everyone can in Europe, right? Um, So we need to invest in democracy. So behind the scenes on global and European level, I try to get funders invest uh, in democracy, in new ideas, in people that might be political, but you know, politics is not always bad. Um, So this is what we need. We need to fund. uh, We need we need funding. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, now as a woman of colour you face and have faced discrimination in various forms I have a question that came into me actually knowing that you would be here Um, and it says the government made it a national action to resolve issues related to gender discrimination however data suggests that racism in the workplace is the bigger issue and a report published earlier this year actually commissioned by the Chamber of Deputies confirms the growing issues related to racism in Luxembourg yet the government doesn't seem to want to take any action in relation to this so you know this is going back to your point of not having representation in the government Uh, people like you more people like you so something that is clearly has been shown to be the biggest issue of discrimination in the workplace is not being addressed how can you give a voice to that?
4: Mm-hmm. Good point. Yeah, the thing is, there's no representation. So I cannot be there to say, hey, hey, we need to act on this. And I hope I can in the future. But um, um, that's the thing. The representation matters because these issues are otherwise not being addressed. Because if it's not a priority for you, if, not, if you not have not experienced this um, by yourself, you cannot know. Right. So uh, for me, I see it. You know, I'm continuing in politics, not not only for me. You know, I could also have gone another path and become a lawyer and continue. You could have that. become Nicholas, yeah. <laughs> but I decided not to. I decided to now also open doors for people like me in these spaces. Um, we need to train the next generation of leaders. We need to identify young leaders that are rooted in their communities already now that have the right ethics but if they're rooted in their communities if they're already active on local level they care they care about people we need to identify them these young people need to be trained to take their fear away and then eventually get them on lists super important so so This is not surprising. I mean, I know uh, it's not surprising to me. There are a lot of things that I could tell you that are annoying and they are annoying a lot of people here in Luxembourg. But if we don't, if we don't, if we don't take that path, it's not going to change. We need to go into office. We need to run for office. Well,
0: another point is that uh, not all of us are Luxembourgish. We yeah. don't have the language and we can't vote, etc. But that might be a bigger debate. Uh, another point. Uh, but coming back to you, Nicholas, I wanted to bring your voice in here. Law is so often connected with politics and politicians' lives. Did you ever think about going into politics?
2: I never thought about going into politics, but I'm looking forward to Jana going <laughs> into politics with her legal training, which is, of course, uh, politics is ultimately about legislation, choosing what laws to make and having uh, good legal knowledge uh, and understanding of some of the, I, I say, the, the moral principles behind laws. Why are laws there, there? What is international law? What does that mean from the point of view of what one expects for the relations between nations? Uh, at, at the most domestic level, you know how do you balance? when taking a decision as a politician, uh, benefits to a certain part of the community and that perhaps adverse consequences for others. Um, and so that's why we talk about human rights. Uh, human rights, uh, for example, are, are, are there in every aspect of, of, of law as Something that you always have to bear in mind in how you structure whatever you're trying to achieve legally, which may not always be focusing on the human rights itself, but dealing with some particular problem. Mm -hmm. So I'm just looking forward to, uh, 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 unless she comes to Jungminster where I can vote for her there. I think uh, I'll have to (laughs) wait for Jana's appearance on the the national scene.
0: I I don't think you'll be long waiting there. But just on the point of representation, I know it's a conversation in the UK as well when it comes to law Mm. and trying to get uh, more minority groups entering the legal profession because it's dominated by...
2: I I, I I think that the legal profession in the United Kingdom has made a lot of progress Yes. In, in recent years. And certainly the the bar, as I knew it when I joined more than 50 years ago, is very different uh, nowadays. Um, there are, uh, I, I'm not too sure of the precise figures, but uh, they're there both uh, in, in terms of the number of women and the terms of number of people of colour who uh, are not merely entering the profession, but then moving on to become judges. And indeed, I think we even have uh, one in the Court of Appeal, too, if I remember right, in the, in the Court of Appeal. You know. So, so, uh, so what has happened is it takes time, of course, because you, you can't be appointing judges unless they have already come into the profession 20, 30 years mm-hmm. earlier. So what we're seeing now at the highest levels is a reflection of uh, what... what took took place 20 or 30 years ago, and mm-hmm. one can only hope it continues. And it, it actually, I think, not only makes it more reassuring to uh, people in minorities who felt excluded, understandably, by not seeing the, uh, someone of their own race, color, gender uh, in, in, in the highest pl- places, uh, to, to feel that, uh, I am, so to speak, represented there. It's not a, it's not a prohibited area for, for, for people to join. And and that in itself, it tends to create the virtuous circle of encouraging them to think about, uh, as Yana has, I don't know when you gave up the idea of being a lawyer, but certainly <laughs> at the time you chose uh, to do public law and international law at, at, at university, you must have wondered about that possibility. And, uh,
4: Absolutely. No, just like I feel I'm not giving up. Uh, it's just that I feel that there needs to be some political on um, entrepreneurship in politics. Which, what does that mean? Um, I'm trying to build on political incubator, leadership incubator, which means that I'm going to identify emerging leaders, course party, get them in my programme and then get them through training it's not okay how how our parliaments and councils are looking here in Luxembourg. It really annoys me. I need to change it. I really need to change it. Well, when you have this wonderful uh,
0: entrepreneur political... Uh Group found and you've got a place to uh, train them it can be online of course as well we would love to have you back to talk more about it because it's obviously something that's just going to grow and grow and grow love your energy Yana and everything that you're doing Nicholas thank you so much Sasha as always thank you and Jackie as well and I wish you a lovely trip to see your daughter next week in New York thank you you all so much for joining me today
4: thank you thank you The Lisa Burke Show